This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 29. The way I think about inclusion is inclusion is all about how people are able to show up, deliver, and engage and activate others. That's inclusion. Inclusion is just, I get to show up, be my best performer for you organization, and in the process, activate everybody around me. How can a culture of inclusion enable high performance? Why is data so important to understanding and measuring inclusion? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. My guest this week is Dane Holmes. Dane is co-founder and CEO of Escalera, which is an employee experience and organizational analytics software platform that empowers inclusive and high-performance cultures. Prior to co-founding Escalera, Dane spent 19 years at Goldman Sachs, including his last role as CHRO and head of human capital management. Before Dane became an HR leader, he spent many years in line leadership roles at Goldman Sachs, working across four different divisions, including being the head of investor relations, leading the financial institutions, financing group, and investment banking, and as head of financial institutions, risk management, and the advisory and finance division. Clearly, Dane's career path has been varied and in many cases non-traditional, but one constant has been his passion for making an impact and his passion for people. I'm confident that you're going to feel Dane's passion and energy as a leader and be inspired by his vision for how inclusion can activate and bring out the best in all of us. In our conversation, Dane and I discuss why he believes organizations need to invest more in their HR professionals, how inclusion activates others to bring out their best performance, the biggest mistakes organizations make when thinking about inclusion and belonging, why mutual value exchange is a difference maker in collecting actionable data from your workforce, and why he believes the CHRO position is one of the most important roles in the C-suite and much, much more. Dane, welcome to the Future of HR. Great to be here, JP. We're excited to have you on the podcast today. Let's jump into it. Tell me more about your incredible career journey and specifically more about your transition from a line role into HR and ultimately leading human capital management at Goldman Sachs. That is quite a journey. Yeah, well, thanks. I would hate to start by correcting you, but I don't know if I'll say amazing. I've had an interesting career. That's the only, that's the only thing I'll say. I don't know whether it's amazing or not. In a lot of ways, I could attribute my career you know, kind of progress to probably four things. The most important, without a doubt, is luck. I'm a huge believer that luck drives most things. And if people both acknowledge the luck in their life and realize that a lot of it was luck, they would probably be more humble and and also seek out more opportunity because they know that it's you know it's just uh, how much luck might come across your threshold. So that's a big one. The other one, frankly, was fear of failure. Fear of failure was a big driver of my career for a long time. Certainly, not just from the like classic put in a lot of work, but it made me certainly early in my career go at what I thought might be perceived as my my weaknesses. 
So fear of failure was a big driver of a big part of my career. Um, and, you know, not the traditional like, oh, fear of failure. So I worked really, really hard. More fear of failure so that there was, there was a perception of something that I'd be weak at or an actual reality of something that I was weak at. Earlier in my career, I literally dived headfirst in those. So, you know, I graduated from Columbia University with an architecture degree and went to Wall Street. So no one thought that I would have the accounting chops, right? And so that was that was the thing. Like, he's not going to be technical. He's in an ar- architecture major. What's he doing here? And so, you know, when back then you got recruited to go into different roles and one of the uh, industry groups that was out there that had nobody at it uh, was the insurance investment banking group. And I asked somebody, you know, what's that about? And they're like, oh, nobody wants insurance. It's like actuarial accounting. Like, it's like harder than normal accounting. Like nobody would ever do that. And I was like, I am. <laughs> so I went over there and did it. So, you know, that, that fear of failure, which was driven by that did, did a lot. And then I think just the last one that drove it was contrarian thinking. I just tended, meaning I tended to look at what the opportunity was in something as opposed to what the established benefit was. So a lot of times when people are like, oh, everybody's doing X. I would look at that and say, well, that's kind of already had its run. Oh, nobody wants to do why. Well, why not? Like, what's going on? Could it, could it have its run? And so I was always driven by that. So that's kind of a little bit, you know, just from a personality makeup, what drove my career. The other part was, like I said, I graduated from Columbia. I was an architecture major, did an architecture internship, hated it was like, oh my God, my life's over and my parents aren't paying for anything and I got a ton of student debt. So I was in New York and people were like, oh, you should try finance. I did an internship on Wall Street, actually loved it. Loved it largely for three reasons. One, I thought it was a lot of like intellectual analytical rigor and I liked that. I liked that part of the brain. It also was super interpersonal. It's a people-driven business. So you had that like social EQ side of it. So you had IQ, you had EQ. And anything, anybody who knows from my generation, anything about analysts, you know, that's the entry level position on wall. When I was coming in, you spent all your time doing pitch books. Well, let me tell you what is an unrecognized weapon in the pitch book industry, an architecture major. I had the most beautiful books you would ever see in your life, right? Like all the forums, all the graphics, all that stuff. So that's what led me to Wall Street. And then from there- Did that help you stand out and get noticed? Your pitch books look better and people said, hey, what's Dane doing that other people aren't doing? A hundred percent. And just like organizing information, thinking of like how it like fits and what's the best way to display it. And I would take these giant spreadsheets and say, oh, well, these are the six points. How do we want to relate them into each other on a single slide? And so it just became more consumptive, easier to consume than just sitting in, you know, rows and rows of an Excel spreadsheet. And so, yeah, so people started liking me and the senior guys started saying, hey, can we get Dane on our team? Like, like what? we got a big book. Like, can we get, uh, can we get Dane? And so that's kind of how it started. The other part is I was always very driven to people, much more people over status or money. So there would be jobs that would come up where one job opportunity would definitively pay me more. But if I had another one that was with someone I really respected, and by the way, that respect was a combination of both professional respect as well as personal respect, then I would always go that direction. And so much of my career as I moved through these different groups was having these great opportunities to work with people I deeply respected. And so that made my, because of that factor, my career didn't seem normal necessarily, right? So I was a banker, 
Then I was a risk manager. Then I was the head of IR. And then I went from the head of IR. They asked me, uh, Lloyd Blank, the CEO at the time, asked me to take over Pine Street, which is a leadership development. So I was still the head of IR. But I also did this, had this side thing running Pine Street, right? To start. Mm -hmm. And that's what led me down into HR. It was by no intention other than being in IR, talking to Lloyd, him him telling me he had a problem that he wanted me to try and solve. And me asking him, is it an important problem? Do you need a new strategy? Yes. Oh, those things, you need those? Let's go do it. When you moved into HR, did you have some preconceived notions of what HR human capital was and what it should be? So I, um, and you can attribute this not to get too personal. Like I had, I went in with a lot of empathy for HR, you know, call it the uh, kid with a black dad and a white mom kind of growing up in the age that I did that, you know, I, I didn't like the picked on. And a lot of time HR can get picked on like, oh, it's HR, you know, oh, they're, oh, so HR wants something. So I kind of went in there with a pretty big um, empathetic heart for them not being as appreciated maybe as they should be. The, the parts of it that were surprising to me in it was that, and you see this at times, sometimes what was being taught and how you saw HR practiced was very, very different. So most HR professionals will talk to you about the need for collaboration, good communication. I mean, they built curriculum around it. They've designed programs for it. But as I got into it, and not just at my organization, but as I met with all these other CHROs as I was coming to that position, I just realized how deeply siloed it is. And so that mm-hmm. was that was surprising to me, right? Like I would have thought, hey, as purveyors of the we're all united collaborative, put people first, like it would be much, much more collaborative. But you know, once again, it, there's a reason for all and these. Do you mean things. siloed from the Dan, do you mean siloed from the business? Or siloed from siloed both, both yeah. their constituent and to each other. So mm-hmm. when I, you know, would go to CHROs and I'd say things like, "So how does you know your comp team work with your talent acquisition team? Like, what's the shared strategy?" They'd be like, "What?" Okay. I'd be like, "Well, no, but you're going out and hiring all this talent and you're doing all this lateral like." Isn't there like a really strong connection between the people who go get the talent and then the pay you pay to get that talent? And I'd be like, and the answer was always like, no, what, what are you talking about? And so that sort of internal silo, but also the secondary silo was, you know, I was just surprised coming from the business side and being a traditional investment banker where you advise clients. Like I was expected to know the business almost as well at times as my, as my client. And so I was surprised at times in HR where I'd be like, well, do you know what the three key strategic drivers are of this business you're supporting? And they'd be like, well, I know they got to do promotions. No, like, I mean, do you know the meta thing they're trying to do in it? And so that was a little bit surprising me. So the siloed nature of HR was something that, you know, caught me more by surprise. And I'm sure it's different at different organizations, but I would say it's a function that should have zero silos. That probably has too many. I think you're right. HR should have zero silos. And part of this podcast is about building that business mindset, being business first, understanding the strategy, what are we trying to do and how do you translate into talent and capabilities to win? And I think the best HR people do that because they really are business people first. Yeah. And that's why, you know, someone like you going to that role made a big difference in probably why you were asked 
And, yeah, and um, listen, I've heard it's a JP. I've heard it's a big trend now of a lot of CHROs not coming from the HR background. Now, I don't celebrate that. I view that as a response mechanism, right? You know that people want it, but I do. Whenever I'm talking to either people who are in the role or who aspire for the role, I always say, "Hey, wherever you're leaning, you should have more gravitational pull towards understanding the core business." of whatever organization you're in, like literally, how do they make money? Right? Absolutely. <laughs> like what is the biggest things that impact them? Where do they sit in the marketplace? Not from who they can recruit or their benefits package. How does their business sit in the market? Right? Um, right. So it's fine that your competitor A has, you know, you have better benefits from them, but are they clocking you in the market every day? Um, with with how they're, they generally perform, you should know. You should understand that. Like that part of it is almost more important. You're 100 correct, and we're working on that. I think as an industry, we're getting better. I do think we're making progress, but there is a long way to go. And it's really about getting the next generation to understand how the business operates, the context. Uh, we need more MBAs coming into HR. I think as well. You know, but also to be, great degree. I, I totally agree with you, JP. But also to be fair to HR professionals, it's not a surprise that they were where they are. I think they've been underinvested in. I think there haven't been enough tools built to help them do that, to literally do what they're what they're trying to do to to have more access to data, to have more tools that allow them to scale and think holistically about what's going on. And I also think that a lot of leaders aren't leveraging HR like they should. I think we're not here just by HR HR professionals saying, oh, this is where I want to be. This is what I'm going to do. I think there's a broader ecosystem that almost created that as well. Yeah, well said, Dane. Well, next, you made this big move. You left Goldman Sachs and you made the decision to become a co-founder and CEO of Escalera. Tell us more about how this came about and what made you make that big leap. Yeah, so, you know, whenever you do something that is at least on the surface that like, drastic, right? <laughs> or whenever that, that big of a, a pivot, it's never one thing. It's always a series of things, right? And so for me, a couple of those series of things was, you know, wanting to grow and learn more and, and, and feeling like I had other places to explore and expand. And so part of that is just industries. You know, I've been in financial services my whole life. i uh, you know, Goldman is an amazing company, about a third of its technology, but it's not technology. It's not like technology is, the, is necessarily the driver. And this desire for this other big industry that was um, impacting the world was part of it. The second was sitting in the seat. I was super frustrated by the fact as a business person that I didn't have the tools to give me the answers I wanted. And so I'll give you the classic examples. And I've, I've done this in the past with other CHROs like, uh, what's your highest ROA, ROI recruiting pipeline? It's no one knows. No Correct. one knows. By the way, in the business, it would be like asking, what's your most effective distribution channel? And if you didn't know the answer to that question, literally, you didn't have a job. <laughs> like, like That was right. like so poor. So sitting there, I was like, wow, this is an industry that doesn't have necessarily the tooling, hasn't been given the investment in it. And so I think this is a, a huge opportunity and I want to be part of it. And plus it appeals with my nature to my desire to learn more about technology. I think the last third one was I really was excited about the opportunity about doing something that would simultaneously make individual people's lives better 
while making organizations better. There's been this long-standing narrative that there's like a tension point between an organization and its people. And I think that's a false narrative. I think that there's tremendous alignment. I think inclusion is one of those examples of something where if you have an inclusive culture, you will be more productive. You will have higher employee retention. You'll create better results. You'll be more innovative. And actually, the individual people will enjoy their jobs more. Like those two things can coexist together. And if I could have any impact on that, small or large, wanted to. And so that's a little bit about, you know, why Escalera was all those things. And my family left San Francisco. And so it was a chance to experience the West Coast, too. So that, that was part of it, too. Well, I love how thoughtful you are about your career decisions. And I want to get to talk a little more about Escalera in a second, because I think it's a really cool platform. And I want to hear more about the tech you guys have built that's, that's helping organizations be more inclusive and drive belonging. But I, I cannot move past this question. I want to know a little bit more about the three questions you typically ask yourself when you think about a new role. Because I really think next generation HR leaders are going to appreciate what you have to say about this on, and how you think about managing your career. Yeah, I always had this point of wanting to understand, first of all, for whatever I was doing, that it was important. It was viewed as important. Does this, in some sense, does this matter, right? And matter filled, when you ask that question, it fills a lot of different pieces to it. Like one piece of it, where does it sit, obviously, in the priority of the organization. But what it also really fix, fixates you on is that like success here has consequence, has like impact, right? It's almost like an impact question. The other thing that I always would ask is, does it need a new strategy? Does it need new energy? Those, that's also a little bit about me knowing, right? Hey, that's the work I like to do, but also that's the environment I like to be in, right? Like from a career perspective, forget about what you're going to pay me or what the title is. Are we going to be creating like in that process, right? Are we going to be, are we going to be building something? Are we going to be excited about what we're building? The other question often when you're going through that, does it matter? Are you going to have the energy? Do you need a new energy? Do you need a new strategy? It all leads to this conversation you have with yourself about like, why are you doing what you're doing and, and what sort of result are you going for? And for me, that's a little bit of finding the meaning, right? The meaning of it. And so to me, it's why am I doing it? What kind of energy? What kind of meaning am I getting out of it? What does success look like? Those were really the things. And so if I went into any situation where in looking at those, all of those were yes, right? If you sat there and said, okay, it's got all those things, then like the answer's got to be, I'm doing this. And then if you respect the person you're working with, yeah. right, you feel like there's other opportunities for you to grow. It's a yeah. slam dunk. Yeah, yeah. it's just... So, uh, yeah, and I, I'm sorry, I should have spent more time on that. You know, the people part's a huge part for me, which I talked about earlier, because um, I used to say this to people all the time when they, you know, and I still get this. I have an older son who sends his friends to me for like career advice. So he's 25. So I get all these calls. Can you talk to my friend about whatever? And almost every time when I'm talking to them, I have to make one comment to almost every one of them. I say, hey, I just want to give you a heads up on one thing. We've been talking about your career and what you want to do. And not once have you talked about the type of person you want to work for or people you want to work with. And I promise you, I can design on paper the most beautiful job. Like every, imagine, like I'll even do the extreme stuff. You only have to work three days a week. You get a month off to go backpacking every six months. Or Like I could write that whole thing. If I give you a bad leader, and I give you a toxic team, 
you'll be miserable and you won't learn and you won't grow and your career will stagnate. And so I do think that sometimes in all of this, people make assumptions around the things that actually have the most variability. <laughs> like they're like, oh, I'm going to so-and-so. I'm sure they have great leaders. Really? You sure? You sure you, sure you have a great leader? Uh, I'm sure it's a great team. You sure? You really sure? Right? Um, so that's, oh, that's sage advice. I, I think now though, the day when people call you, you can say, look, just go ahead and listen to the Future of HR podcast. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Uh, I covered that. I think you're so right, though, because we meet our boss, you meet some interview, you don't really know them that well. And so you have to do your homework. And it can be challenging for people. It can be a real a real wake-up call. You get there, the culture's not what you thought, your boss isn't what you thought, and you're like, wow, I'm getting more money, I've got yeah. the big title, but I'm miserable every day. Yeah. It's... And so I think that's really important that people think that through. And the other questions you're bringing up, too, it really requires us to get deep on who we are, how we get jazz, what's going to do it for us, what do I want to contribute? Something yeah. like I'm living to not work, but just living to live. Yeah. I work to live and I don't live to work. And that's okay too. But you probably still want to know who you work for and like them. So I think that well, probably well, goes across the board. I used to do this whole conversation around leadership about this. And I said, part of the problem about leadership is Leadership is often presented in only the positive aspects of it, right? It's the status, it's the success, it's the glory, it's the compensation, right? All these things are presented as like if you went to any school and said, who here wants to be a leader? Like, you know, everybody would put their hands up. But I've done this presentation on, let me talk to you about the pains of leadership. And I talk about the loneliness and the isolation of it, having to hold things by yourself. Like a good leader sometimes has to hold information without being able to share it with anybody else that's eating it apart, has to show up at the meeting and rah rah, but is holding this, this you know, this tough information. They, a good leader is the fall person. Like if you're a good leader, Stuff happens that has nothing to do with you and you have to say my fault, mm -hmm. right? So these are, it's the person who gets in and mitigates difficult situations. It's the person who makes the lesser evil decision all the time, right? I have no good options. I only have two bad options. Which bad option do I pick, right? And so these parts of it is also, you know, when I think about it is most people would say, I want to be a leader. I want to lead a big team on it. And I was like, I'm always like, are you sure you do? Really? Because let me just make sure you understand all the other parts of it. And sometimes it's like, nah, I just want to be a really good teammate. <laughs> Somebody else lead this actually. I don't, I don't want to do that. Well, and go in eyes wide open that yeah. you're right. It's, there's a lot of positives that look glamorous. And there's times where you're, you guys make very tough decisions. Yeah, I used to accountability. I used to know. I used to laugh about this during my career on Wall Street, where people would say, "Wow, Dane, you know, nice suits, and you get uh, get to drive around in a black car, and uh, you get paid a lot." And you're like, "Dude, I worked 120 hours last week. There was nothing glamorous about it, right? Like it didn't it didn't feel glamorous at the moment. So just make sure, you know, yeah, to your point, Chief, eyes wide open, right, on some of this stuff, right." Eyes wide open. Well, tell us more about Escalera and how you're helping organizations be more inclusive and high performing yeah. through technology, but some really innovative things you're doing just in addition to technology. Because yeah, it's not just tech. Yeah. 
So there's a bunch of things that are going on at once. And so let me break it into a few buckets. So first, let me just talk about our philosophy around inclusion, because I think that, you know, everything kind of flows through that. So a lot of people have historically looked at DE&I through the lens of both risk mitigation, like what do I do not to be sued, right? Or they looked at it as a topic, like what does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be black? What does it mean? Like, you know, it's kind of like a topic, right? Well, part of the reason that I think it hasn't gotten the degree of acceptance that it has deserved to get over time has been that, that kind of mindset of it. The way I think about inclusion and certainly the way we approach it at Escalera is inclusion is all about how people are able to show up, deliver, and engage and activate others. That's inclusion. Inclusion is just, I get to show up, be my best performer for you organization, and in the process, activate everybody around me. That's what inclusion is. And when you think about it that way, you do not think about risk mitigation and you don't think about topics. (laughs) What you think about is opportunity, right, of it, and you think about driving behaviors. And so that's really where we are. So when we think about inclusion, we don't think about inclusion as like, and, and I use this, I know it's a false choice of saying, hey, if I have the choice that somebody understands everything there is to understand about diversity or behaves unbelievably inclusive, I pick behaves unbelievably inclusive every day of the week, right? Because there's plenty of people who understand d and doesn't mean they're inclusive. I know people who know it, but don't act it, right? But what you really want is the behavior. So taking that philosophical point back to Escalera, so what do we focus on? We focus on giving people the knowledge and skills, specifically skills, so that when somebody says, okay, that's interesting, but how do I do it? How do I actually action that? The skills to take the action to drive that outcome. We also focus on them connecting and doing that with others. So at the end of, of working with Escalera, your employees should have the knowledge, the skills, their network should have grown. And the consequence of it is that they're building that inclusive culture in their organization. And so that's really what we're focused on. Now, the tactical techn- technology pieces of it that I'll just point on really quick is that to do it well, you really need three things. I'll do them in probably reverse order. You need scale, you need sustainability, and you need data. So if I'm trying to drive behavior, if I can't scale it, if I convinced 10 people in a 10,000-person organization to behave differently, it doesn't change the organization. If whatever I'm doing, I need to be able to sustain it four years you don't do behavior change by going into an auditorium for an hour and then come out. Hey, we did an innovation session for two hours. Come out. We're innovative now. <laughs> no, that, that doesn't happen. But honestly, the most important one is the data one. Because if you don't have the data, you don't know where to focus. You don't know where to take best practice from. And you also don't have the ability to say no to certain things. Hmm. And other, and if you don't have that, you end up trying to boil the ocean. So for us, what's amazing about Escalator is on an individual level, your employees are going to have the skills. By the time uh, they've spent time with us, they're going to be upskilled. Their networks are going to be bigger. 
as a result of, of that effort. And for an organization, you're going to have an unbelievable ability to scale and sustain that effort. And it's all going to be super data rich. So for the first time in your life, you can say when somebody says, oh, I think we should do X, you can say, that's not our problem. This is our behavioral problem that we have to deal with. It sounds like you guys have really built an innovative approach to this that is comprehensive. Because yeah. I, I think a lot of times we focus on the data yeah. or one aspect of this. There's a lot of research that unconscious bias training is not working because it's, it's one training. Correct. It's not systemic. It's not looking at other areas. And I think you're on the right track with thinking about inclusion. Because yeah. I think when you talk about inclusion and getting along and belonging and cooperating, collaborating, why would you argue with that? That's going to make everyone better. And so how do you do that as the behavior piece? Are there things that companies should be doing to increase inclusion and belonging? Yeah, so here's a couple of things. Let me talk about the two ends of it because and this, you know, maybe is a byproduct of growing it up in an interracial family down south. But, you know, to me, the truth is often in the middle, somewhere in the middle. Um, so let me talk ab about that a little bit. So on one hand, I think from the leadership side of it, they have to reframe why they're doing it. As long as why they're doing it is they need to do it for a PR perspective or they need to do it to, like, mitigate litigation, they will not, they will not be successful at it. Like not, not in it as I would define what success looks like. In other words, turbocharging, unlocking the people potential of your company. So I think on that side, there's still a lot of work that has to be done there. I think you, know, you just see how people fund things, how they give resources to things. I always have this, I used to have this thing where I would talk to folks where I'd say, okay, you say people are your number one asset. Let's like, let's do your allocation. Right. And then they'd be like, oh, well, look how much I spend on my people. I go, oh, no, 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 no. That's the minimum you have to spend. That's like just market standard, right? That's, you know, you got to pay a salary. You got to pay a set of benefits. What's the act, right? And so, and so sometimes you're like, well, wait, what do you mean? And you're like, no, that, that would be yeah. what's consistent with my number one asset, right? You don't buy a house and never spray wash it or cut the lawn or whatever, you know, you, right. you spend to maintain it. Well, I think in that situation, people really are basically saying people are my number one expense, not my number one asset. If you're an asset, you're going to invest in it. Beautiful, JP. 100% now annoyed that I didn't think about saying that myself. <laughs> you can steal that <laughs> yeah. all you want. <laughs> but I totally agree. So I think that's at the top side. I think at the, at, the, at the employee side is the biggest thing that people aren't really doing is thinking about this as a collective exercise. So what I find is too often happening is people are picking issues or topics and they're laying that, they're laying the whole base of something on that. Like, you know, it could be, oh, we need this benefit or uh, this manager said this terrible thing. And they're laying the entire success on the resolution of that event. Hmm. That is not going to change a culture of inclusion in it. And in some cases, it can be done in a way that it makes it worse, right? And so I think on both sides, you got to always think about this as a collective. And I used to say to people, you should look at your success in DE&I is how many people who've never participated in a DE&I event are now participating in one? And then how many do more than one? Because the fact that you keep having, you know, 
if you have people who always did two a year and you're doing, you know, 50% better the next year because everybody who did two is now doing three, you didn't actually change the org. It's great. Like people are more interested, whatever, but I'm still worried about the people who haven't been done one. Right. And how do I get the people who haven't done one to catch up with the people who do two, et cetera? What, what types of data are you collecting? Yeah. Is it pull surveys? Are you looking at you know organizational network analysis or kind of who's engaging who? How, yeah, so, how are you guys looking at inclusion and measuring it? Yeah, so this is an important philosophy for us. So we have this concept of um, mutual value exchange. It has to happen. In other words, we're not going to grab data unless we're giving you something you want. You want to learn a skill. You want to connect to a team member. You want to have a discussion. Like we are only grabbing data in that context. And the data that we're grabbing, which is the data that is largely absent from most HR data. So if you think of what most HR data is, it has like your hire date, it might have your gender and ethnicity, it has your compensation, it has these what I would call payroll slash personnel type of data. That data doesn't tell you what you want, why you want it, what you do, who you do it with which is all the behavioral, motivational, and aspirational data, which actually allows you to unlock their potential. That's the data we're collecting. So we're collecting the data. So when, you're, when you create a product that gives you something that you want, you can naturally ask the question, what else do you want? And think about it. With all of the HR tech that's out there, how, many of the, how much of the tech asks the user what they want? And not giving value first. It's always like, well, tell me what you want. Let's do a poll survey. And then we'll come back with something. Which, look, I mean, that's where we're at for a lot of things. Uh, uh, but I think what you're talking about is, and I think this is a, a, a gap for every company, we have basic stats that if we were a marketing company and we're trying to find our customers, we would die and be out of business very quickly. We don't know anything except that you started in this day or you're this age. Yeah. But you're right. We don't know what motivates you. And sometimes we're afraid to even ask those questions because we're scared. What, what are we going to do when we find out? Can we even solve that problem for you? So Correct. it sounds like you guys are taking it totally for flipping it and saying, look, we're going to give you some value. Now let's engage on this and we're going to learn more as we go. And you're collecting that data and bringing that back to sort of get a collective view of how inclusive the workforce is and what behaviors are shifting. So I really agree with the marketing example. You know, I've had people say, well, oh, that data is just so hard to get. I go, hey, other people are able to decide whether to send a coupon for frosted mini wheats or non-frosted mini wheats to this zip code on this block. I think we can figure out something like what somebody wants out of their career. I think we can do it, right? And so, but I do think, and once again, this goes a little bit, JP, to our conversation earlier about mindset, is if your mindset around people is like run processes and mitigate risk, that's why you never ask. Because process is top down and mitigate risk is like, you know, don't know too much. Don't, don't ever know something that you can't then deliver. But by the way, if I'm a manager, let's say, why as I as a manager would I not want to know what motivates everybody on my team and what they're trying to work towards? Now, do I think I can give them every one of their aspirations? No. But you know what? If they have five and I can give them three, then, and I can really deliver on those three. They might be okay not getting the other two. But if I don't even know what the five are, I'm throwing darts in the dark, right? 
and you start making assumptions. Oh, so-and-so came into my office and said they're focused on this. Oh, this is what the team's focused on. I'm going to give it to everybody. You don't even know that that's the only person focused on that. Well, I think it goes back to your point of what's the why. Yeah. Is it around risk and I check the box? Or are you trying to unlock potential drive engagement, increase retention, and really get deeper with what your team members need and want? Yeah. It seems like that's the big unlock uh, in terms of why someone goes with Escalera or you know, takes a different approach on DE&I. Yeah, and I, I used to always laugh because there would be all this effort that I would see at times in organizations where somebody's decided to leave because they want to do something else. You know, They have these career goals and they can't really be filled in that role. And there's this whole onslaught of effort that goes to convince them that that's not what they want. Right? No, stay, do these things. I'm sure you've been involved in these before or whatever. And the reality is I would sat back and looked at those systems and said, that is such a broken system. The system you need is a system that understands what somebody wants and matches them with it, by the way, as quickly as possible. <laughs> like not, not delay it, like get them there as fast as you, as you can, because, you know, if they can't do it here, they'll do it somewhere else. If they're staying there and doing it over time, they're just going to become less engaged, which translates to less productivity. Like it's, but because we don't have the data and the measurement, you don't see it. So you make these, like you make these errors. And so that's really what we want to break down kind of organizationally for HR professionals. Well, it sounds like you are, you know, on a mission to have more impact, which we are, we're grateful and excited to see where it continues to go with Escalera. I do want to ask you one more question because you've said this, and I think it's an important question to ask you. You said that in the future, the CHRO or chief mm -hmm. people officer role will become one of the top three roles in the C-suite. Yeah. Why do you believe that? Yeah. So for a bunch of reasons. So first of all, I'm not very smart, but I'm good at recognizing patterns. <laughs> and so I look at the evolution of so many other roles who went in the corporate world from not that important to very important. And so CEO has always been an important role, obviously. But think of the rise of CFO. CFO was not a big role for a while. It was accounting, just like HR was personnel. But what started to happen was a couple of things. One, you started developing tools that made you understand finance better. As you started to understand finance better, you started to realize that managing it well became your competitive advantage. Once you realized that it became your competitive advantage, you started pouring investment in it. And it just fed on itself. And now the idea that you would do anything big in your corporate space without your CFO involved would be viewed as heresy. That exact same analog exists for HR. <laughs> and I would argue even more so. Because economics, like finance, has natural constraints. It lives in an economic world with economic limitations. Money is not unlimited. You have to make zero-sum choices. The world of the potential of people is boundless. Like the team that is way, way better than the other team isn't just 50% better. It's magnitudes better. And so what I think is going to happen and what it's going to become, and listen, I hope the HR professional industry itself is going to do it. It's going to take on this mantle and start doing it. But they're going to have to switch what they focus on. So it's going to be less, hey, what program did I 
launch? How did I manage risk? What are my processes? Like, how do I assess talent? Like, you know, all these things that I would argue can be commoditized to some degree. And it's going to be much more about how do I get prioritization, right? Should I be launching a new benefits program or should I pay everybody 3% more? What creates a better outcome? That's a prioritization discussion, right? Do we need to do this in the U.S.? Oh, no, we do things everywhere. Do we need to really? Does, does this thing transport? Like, how do you prioritize? I think a lot will be about performance upskilling. Like, the HR person should be sitting there saying, like, hey, our product is changing from X to Y. We need to upskill our people who know how to sell X but have no idea to sell Y. Like, how do I get them up that ladder as fast as possible? Right. So upskilling, what are the things that we need? And then I think at the end, it'll be, and this was true for CFOs, data analytics and storytelling. Part of the reason the CFO became so powerful is it leveraged data and it put a story around data. Right. And so I think for people as well, the storytelling now is too soft, meaning we're making a better culture. Hey, by doing this effort that we put in place, we drove sales by 20%. Now you're listening, right? Now you're listening. And by the way, we know we did it because we ran it in this group and not in that group, and that's the Delta, right? And so I just think that's the future. And once that's the future, a CEO will sit there with any major strategic thing it's doing and say, CFO, how do the numbers look? <laughs> CHRO? What can we do with the talent? How can we drive performance in this? And what are the predictive analytics? What are you seeing? What do you think is going to happen? Correct. Right. I, I made this merger. What should I think attrition should really be? By the way, how can I ascertain whether my attrition really is positive or negative? Last question for you. What is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? So this is a funny one, and we use it at Escalera, so it's a little bit of a cheat for me to say it, but it's empowerment. And I know that word means different things to different people, but the way when I'm using the word empowerment, I really mean it through the lens of more empowered HR professionals. And I mean that from their relative positioning in the org. I mean more empowered by having more tools available to them and capable to them to make them able to make these decisions and have these insights. But I also mean it very much at the employee level. I'm deeply in the camp, and I know a lot of people think, you know, a more difficult market and a recessionary environment will change this. I think the power dynamic between employees and companies has permanently changed. And we can tip around the edges, but that seesaw of power is in the hands of employees. You better very quickly start thinking about how do you empower them? Because the concept of containing or restraining or dictating is a losing strategy. The strategy is, hey, I joined this company because this company is going to empower me the most to get the most out of my career. They're going to empower me to have the best skill development, the best network, the best experience. And so for me, I think an empowered world is the directionality and I can't tell you if we'll be there in two years, five years, or 10. Dane, I really appreciate being on the future of HR today. Thanks so much. We learned a lot. Appreciate it. It was my pleasure. And thank you for doing this. I've enjoyed listening to all of your 
your podcast and it's a service to all of us who are fighting this fight. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Dane for his amazing career insights and his vision for how empowerment and inclusion can help us all achieve new heights. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you're enjoying Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and please help us spread the word to other next-gen HR leaders like yourself. We'll be back next week with Tomas Chamorro Premusic. Tomas is an international authority on human intelligence, talent management, leadership development, and people analytics. He has authored 10 books and over 150 scientific papers, making him one of the most prolific social scientists of his generation. In our conversation, Tomas and I will discuss his newest, and I believe his most important book, iHuman, AI, Automation, and the Quest to Reclaim What Makes Us Unique. This will be one episode you will not want to miss, so tune in next week. And thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.